Hello, and welcome to the Renaissance Podcast. Thank you for joining us to worship and learn more about God as we all pursue Him together as a community. For more podcasts and services about past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendecatur.org. Or come connect with us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. Now, enjoy the message. Good morning again, everyone. How was uh, worship so far for you this morning? Good? I believe you. I'm going to read our passage of scripture that we're working through this morning. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 7. I'll be reading verses 18 through 30. If you don't have a Bible, underneath the seat close to you, there's probably a hardback black Bible that you're welcome to use today. Um, You're also welcome to take that Bible home with you this morning if you don't own a Bible. And if you don't, if you can't find one and would like to take one home with you after service, just start rooting around, um, not in people's purses, but you can find a Bible. And uh, at some point in the year, we'll have to open up the lost and found because there's some really good Bibles in the lost and found. And we'll give those away as well. So anyways, if we uh, we'll put the the words on the screens um, that you can follow along. But let's start here in verse 18. It says that the disciples of John reported all of these things to him. And John, verse 19, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord Jesus, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And, then when, and when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And in that hour, Jesus healed many people of disease and plagues and evil spirits, And on many who were blind, Jesus bestowed sight. And then Jesus answered him, verse 22, Go and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. For the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And he says, The poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, um, gone, Jesus rather began to speak to the crowds that had gathered concerning John. And he says this, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Did you want to go see a reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? He asks, a prophet? Yes, yes, I tell you. And more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, Jesus quoting the Old Testament here. He says, I, I send my messenger before, you, before your face, and he will prepare a way before you. In verse 28. And I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. What a crazy passage. It's a portion of scripture we would call narrative. It's telling a story, and there's a lot of moving pieces in it, and I get only, 
I only have you guys for like 75 minutes, so I don't have much time to tell you everything that's happening. Uh, you wish. I don't want to be up here for 75 minutes. So let's just start. I have a couple things to say about a few of the verses. Um, but to get there, let me tell you a story. There's a former child prodigy and world-renowned solo violinist by the name of Joshua Bell. And Josh Bell joined with the Washington Post back in 2007 to perform a sort of social experiment. Josh, the virtuoso on the violin, was going to don a baseball cap and play his violin in one of the busiest subway plazas in Washington, D.C. during rush hour. And they wondered, and this is the experiment, could this virtuoso get anyone to stop and listen to him play a classical piece from Bach or Chopin? Would anyone throw money into his open violin case like all of the other street musicians busking for money? And they just wanted to test this thing out. So on a brisk Friday morning in January of 2007, as thousands of commuters walked past, Joshua opened the case on his $3.5 million Stradivarius violin. He <laughs> could have gotten mugged, I'm just thinking, right? He opens the $3.5 million case on a Stradivarius. He tuned the near 400-year-old instrument, and he began to play. Hidden cameras captured what happens next. He played for 43 minutes. During that time, 1,096 people walked past him. And of those walking past, only seven, seven people stopped to listen for more than 60 seconds. 27 people stopped and stooped to approve his talent by tossing him some money. And if we take out the $20, that, son, that one person gave because they recognized him. If we take that $20 out of the, of the pool, he made a grand total of $32.17. That's right, cents. Somebody threw their loose change into the open case of a Stradivarius. Over 1,000 people walked past without a second glance, and many of them would soon, this is crazy, of the people that walked past, many of them would soon shell out 150 bucks to hear him play the exact same program the next night at the symphony hall. <laughs> the, res the result of this social experiment was shocking. And so we try to understand how or why it would happen the way that it happened. We say, well, certainly more people would have stopped had they only known who this was, right? That's the argument. I would have stopped had I known. I'd have driven to watch this guy play in a subway. At least that's what we tell ourselves. But the truth is the majority of the people were just too busy to stop. They're making their way to work because they got stuff to do. We've got stuff to do. We might even argue, well, they didn't stop because classical music is dead, right? No one listens to classical music now. Maybe that's the argument. I think the, the sellout crowd at the symphony hall the next night tells a different story. I think a lot of people do like classical music. So something was going on there. When John the Baptist began his preaching ministry, he began in relative, relative obscurity as well. He came preaching the kingdom of God and of repentance and he saw every intersection before him as a pulpit where he could stand up and declare what God had asked him to share. And I'm sure, like with Joshua Bell, no one stopped to listen to his message either, at least at first. But at some point, his message caught on and the crowds began to gather. The Bible says that people came from all around to hear the message of John the Baptist. They wanted to hear him preach. They came out of the cities and out of the towns and they came into the desert where John the Baptist lived in obscurity. And they went, they went down to the Jordan River where John would baptize 
tens and hundreds, if not thousands of people, telling them to repent and to be made new, to turn their lives back to God. At some point, John the Baptist was being heard by the people. And John's influence with the people eventually became so great that he got the ear of the king. King Herod Antipas would listen to him. The king always, rather, didn't always agree with what John had to say, especially when John was critical of King Herod's marriage to his brother's wife. What? Like, even in today's standard, that's taboo, yeah? Yeah? (laughs) Say yes, please. Or I got a whole other message to preach. (laughs) Yeah, King Herod married his brother's wife. That makes Christmas weird. I'm just saying. <laughs> and and John, John the Baptist knew it to be wrong and told him so. The one thing about John the Baptist is he was known for telling the truth. And he was known to not be liked because of it. John the Baptist goes before King Herod and says, you can't do this. What you're doing is an abomination. You can't do that. And um, eventually the king didn't want to listen to John. He actually wanted to kill him, but the Bible tells us because of uh, John's fame, the king decided not to harm him at that moment and just threw him in prison, which is where we find him today or in the story today. Even the Jewish leaders of John's day, of which he was very highly critical of, they dared not speak openly against him. John was revered and loved. And unfortunately, John's words eventually got him imprisoned, as I mentioned. And that is here where we pick up the story in Luke chapter 7. Scholars believe that John had been jailed for about two years at this point. Jesus' ministry had grown considerably. Many of the the disciples that John had gathered are now following after Jesus. And so many of his apprentices have joined Jesus in in his ministry. But Luke takes a moment now to just zoom in on the story of John. And we now see him as a man who was once able to roam the open wilderness, right? Dressed in camel hair and eating wild honey and locusts. Whatever that looks like, it sounds like freedom to me. Whatever that was, he was free to do whatever God was asking him to do. And now all of a sudden we see him imprisoned, confined to a small dungeon cell. And John, the prophet of God, who once had the ear of thousands, and now he speaks to prison guards or the occasional visitor that stops by to say, hi. The man once able to perform miracles can't even pick the lock that secures his cell. And it's here that we begin to see the effects that circumstances, and this is the thrust of my message, so we begin to see the effects that circumstances can have on a person's faith. That our situations oftentimes dictates what we think about God and who he is. And, and I don't know, I, I, could, I guess I can argue my point now. I don't want to give it away too soon. I think that's wrong to do, and there'll be reasons why we'll get to that. But I want you to hear a pastor's heart. I understand it. (laughs) I understand why we do that. I I understand why we allow the circumstances of our days to dictate whether God is good or not. I know why we do that. I'm just here to say I think it's wrong to do that. So we can learn a lot from John's story. What we see here is John is beginning to doubt. This is the language that that Luke uses in this story. So John was beginning to doubt his faith in Jesus, which was once so certain that he's the one who called Jesus out. One day Jesus is sauntering through the wilderness. 
John the Baptist is doing ministry down by the Jordan River, and he sees Jesus walk by and says to everyone listening, behold, there is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. You can hear pin drop as John declares Jesus to be the long-awaited Messiah. And that faith that he had, that he was so certain that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, is now crumbling apart in a prison cell. Even though the signs and wonders of Jesus were being told to John, he was beginning to struggle to believe. He was struggling to believe that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. Was his faith true? Was he, did he really believe? Maybe, maybe he was mistaken. Like I can imagine all of the things John is probably whispering to himself in his mind. Go back to verse 18. We see the story pick up here. The disciples of John reported all of these things to him. What are all of these things? It's, it's all the things that, just, that Luke had just recorded for us previously. So we don't have time to go back, but Jesus had just healed a widow's dead son, brought him back to life. A centurion servant had been healed, performing all kinds of miracles and wonders. And they go back and report all of these things to, G, to John in prison. They drop off a bunt cake and say, hey, how you doing? Here's what Jesus has been doing. I don't know what prison visits look like, but in my mind, that's what it looks like. And he says, in verse 19, he calls two of his disciples to him. And he says, I want you to go to Jesus and ask him this question. <laughs> oh, and it's a question I have to know. I need to know the answer to this. So whatever you're doing tomorrow, stop it and go to Jesus and ask them a question. Verse 19, he says, go ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or should we look for someone else? You remember the story. John has already declared him to be the long-awaited Messiah. He knows who he is or he thinks he does. You see the confusion here. And I think the circumstances are driving this confusion. We get the impression that John is still believing that God was going to send a Messiah. Yeah, he just doesn't know if Jesus is the one. Maybe it's going to be someone else. I don't know. The ancient prophecies mentioned that the Messiah would bring freedom to captives, yet John still lays in prison every night. We can imagine John saying, perhaps Jesus isn't the one, otherwise he would set me free. But we must not be people whose faith in God is rooted in what he has done for us. Can I read that again for you? We must not be people whose faith in God is rooted in what he has done for us. I know that sounds strange to hear God loves us, sent Jesus to us, so he certainly wants the best for us. But sometimes what he leads us into and what we want to be led into are drastically different things. Sometimes they even oppose one another. And so if we allow our faith in him to rely on how he works or doesn't work in our lives, then we actually don't have a trusting relationship with him, but rather a transactional relationship. <laughs> and this, my friends, is a distortion of the true relationship that God intends to have with us. God is not a transactional God. How many of you are familiar with my favorite phrase in all of Christendom, the prosperity gospel? Anyone? Yeah, boo, prosperity gospel. You're like, I don't know, is that a bad thing? Yes, it's a bad thing, I'll tell you why. You might be familiar with the phrase prosperity gospel, the type of gospel that says that God wants everyone to prosper, right? I believe that. You believe that, Paula? 
You better say yes, because I know you do, because we've talked about this. Yes, we do, we do believe God wants us to prosper. Yes, but this type of gospel says that everyone should be healthy and wealthy. And they name this sort of message because of Jesus, the prosperity gospel. And this can be wrong on so many fronts, but I'll just give you one. If that was true, if that is actually true of what God intended for his followers, that they would be, always be healthy, they'd always be wealthy, the whole deal, then his, uh, his disciples, every one of his disciples, must have done it wrong. Because every one of them, when you read the New Testament stories, suffered for Jesus, were persecuted for Jesus. And if their circumstances were to dictate their faith in Jesus, we wouldn't have the gospels that we have. We wouldn't have the stories that God has given us in the Bible through these people. If God only wants his people to prosper, then why did every one of his disciples suffer? Why were every one of them driven from their homes? And why were all, of, all but one of them martyred and murdered for their faith? Now, I do think that, that everyone will prosper in Jesus. Say amen. And I do not think he ever desires to harm or punish us. If you think God is mad at you and wants to do bad things to you, you are mistaken. <laughs> Especially if you are a believer, Christ has atoned for us and taken the punishment for us on the cross. For all sins that we had yet to commit some 2,000 years ago, Jesus died for. So the punishment was placed upon him. God's wrath, we might say, if we're going to follow the substitutionary atonement theory, God's wrath had been placed upon his son Jesus, his anger placed upon his son Jesus. He does not have it for you. Why? Because it was given to his son Jesus on your behalf. Somebody smile and tell me you get this. This is why we laud him every week for the work that he's done. You and I don't carry around a bucket of sorrow and shame and self-flagellate ourselves because we're terrible people, which some of us are, to be honest. <laughs> but God has forgiven us in Jesus Christ. A prosperity has been given to us that many of us live beneath because our mind plays tricks on us, allowing our circumstances to dictate whether or not God is still good. He is good, always. <laughs> I have no idea why I'm tearing up right now. Lord, we know we live in forgiveness, and we know that circumstances are tough. But we cannot allow our faith to waver, is what I'm trying to say. But doubt, I know you know this, will come. Doubt will come. John is um, having questions of doubt. Imagine John hearing of all of the miracles that Jesus is performing, yet he won't get John out of prison. What a mental strain and torture that must have been for him. So in his doubt, he sends his two disciples to Jesus and asks him, Are you the one? or not. He doesn't add, because if you are, then you better do something over here, my friend. <laughs> he doesn't say that. And King Herod soon will take the head of John the Baptist. And you could say, you can imagine, just like all of us, I'm sure he doesn't want to die. But he just says, I just need to know, are you the one or not? Because if you are, then I'll be fine here. 
Like if this is where I'm at, that's fine. I just need to know that my faith in you is true. And if that's fine, then everything else will be okay too. Regardless of what my life looks like, regardless of how it's going to end, is Herod going to finally kill me? Probably, but I need to know before I go if Jesus is the one worth following. This is the question he has. He wants to know. And here's Jesus' answer, verse 22. He answers them, the disciples, go and tell John what you have seen and what you've heard. Right? And Jesus just performed a bunch of miracles. The blind received their sight. The lame people walk. The lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus answers John and is no doubt appealing to John's knowledge of the Old Testament, particularly the passage in Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61. The prophet Isaiah said this about the Messiah when he would come, that the blind will see, the lame will walk, the dead will rise, the poor will have the gospel preached to them. And and Jesus is telling those disciples to tell John, tell them you're seeing all of this, which is a declaration in, in a sense that he is the Messiah, but he makes no formal declaration that he is the Messiah. He doesn't say yes. Don't you wish he would just say yes some days to your questions? Instead, he gives them facts, truth, things to ponder, to consider, to work through. And that sometimes is what it's like to follow after Jesus. We wish we all would get the response when in our doubts we say, Lord, if you're real, then just turn these lights off right now. Like I was praying that lights would go off right then. But God doesn't always respond that way. I mean, honestly, how many people have said things like that before? If you're real, then do this. If you're real, then do this. If you're real, right? And and sometimes he answers those questions, but most time not. He tells us other things. He gives us truth about himself, and we ponder them, and we consider them. God can turn the lights off. Of course he can. He tells the oceans where to stop. I saw a lady on YouTube the other day get swept out to sea, and I laughed. I haven't laughed so hard in a long time. <laughs> I mean, she didn't die. Like, I wasn't like, I'm not that guy. But she, like, she went down to the ocean, and, like, big surf was coming in, and she tumbled. And she was a, 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 a healthy woman, let's just say. And um, you know what I'm trying to say? Can I... She's built a lot like me, I'm just going to say. And uh, she got spilled over backwards, and, and she'd just get her footing, and, and another wave would come and take her another 10 feet out. And I'm cracking up at this. And, and finally, a bunch of lifeguards, and I, I mean a bunch, like seven of them were able to get her up and out onto the shore. I don't know why I'm telling you this story. I have no idea where I was going. <laughs> he tells the oceans where to stop. God can do whatever he wants to do. And what he wants to do is have a relationship with you. Not a transactional relationship, but something built upon truth and faith and, and knowledge of one another. And so he gives the truth and we have to do something with it. And the Holy Spirit is a reminder given to us by God who leads us to the truth about who Jesus is. So... As followers of God, we are to be known by our fruits, right? We're to be known by the things that we do. And so Jesus tells John what he has done. Look what I've done. And then he leaves it for John to put it together. Like you stitch it together. You you figure this out. You wrestle with it. You burn the calories so that when it's settled, it's settled for you. For so many of us, we've been taught to believe some things and 
she was cute, and I did like her, and so she tells me this about Jesus. I'll, I'll believe it's true. And then five years, you break up. You don't know. You're on your own now, and, you, and your relationship is based on something she had told you, not on your own understanding. And all of a sudden, your faith begins to crumble. Anyone? That's what I'm saying. So God is inviting us into relationship with him, answering the questions that we have so that we might dance with him and know him on our own. And he is big enough to dance with all of us at the same time. John puts it together. And then Jesus says this strange phrase, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus' response to John through John's own disciples includes this warning, per se. And there is danger to anyone who questions the validity of Jesus' claim to be Messiah. Mic drop. It appears as if some do not believe Jesus can be king, and they do not look because he does not look like a king. Jesus has no riches, no royal garments, no guards, and most importantly, no crown, yet. They only see a man who from the outside looks no different than any poor fisherman or laborer. How could this man be the long-awaited Messiah? This is the question they have. It's just too hard to believe. There has to be a mistake. And thoughts like these surely pass through their minds, through John's mind as well. And so Jesus sends a cautionary word. Blessed are you who is not offended at me. This warning is so important now, even just, just as important as when it was spoken. And it was written some thousands of years ago, and we have to listen to it. Why do, we have, why do we have to believe that we are all sinners that need a savior? Why is that true for us? It's just part of it. We have to understand that. For many, Christ and his stumbling block, for many, Christ will be a stumbling block. So many of us will refuse to receive Christ because we can't see ourselves as broken people. You don't understand the truth of the depravity of sin and what it's done in your life. And I would just argue, just look at your wake behind you. You wonder if you're debauched, look last week. All of us have that in us. And Jesus is the one who can save us. And, and for Christians... Um, this is an easier pill to swallow, but for other faiths, they think we're so narrow-minded to think Jesus is the only way. Surely it could be something else, right? Surely we could do something else. That's not true. And Jesus says, blessed is those people who don't take offense in me. He is the one. All that to say, booking through here now, doubting is not wrong, Okay. So John has some doubt. He's in prison. His circumstances are questioning his faith. That's all good. It's all good. Nothing wrong with that. And this is a point that we need to learn from this story, that doubting is not wrong. And another point we can learn from this story is that at no point does Luke add any commentary that John's doubt was wrong or bad. We don't even hear chastisement in Jesus' tone as he responds to the disciples that come to ask the questions. Rather, we see a story that could easily be ours. Any one of us could find ourselves in this dire circumstance and left unchecked, we could begin to question whether God is good too. Yes, yes. And we can look to John as an example of how to respond. I believe, and this is my, my contention here, is that when doubt creeps in in our faith and our faith begins to bend, we need to turn to Jesus. This is what John does. This is what John does. He could, he could bemoan his situation and talk to 50 other people about the same thing. I'm sure there's a myriad of other prisoners. They could come together and, and, and complain about their circumstance together. He doesn't do so. He goes before Jesus and says, I want you to tell me and so when we doubt, we need to be people who turn to Jesus. And when John's messengers left to return to him, 
um, and give him the answer. Jesus then turns to the crowd and does this amazing thing. Seriously, think about this. Jesus had just heard one of his earliest disciples question him. Like John is saying, are you the one or not? And Jesus is like, yeah, tell him the blind see and all this stuff. And they go back to John and tell them. And then Jesus begins to talk so highly about John. It's almost amazing to see. John the Baptist, who ushered Jesus into ministry with his baptism in the Jordan River, was doubting Jesus. And rather than complain about it, Jesus uses John as an example. <laughs> Look at verse 28. He says, I tell you this, among those born of a woman, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus says, even with his doubts, nobody is greater than him. You think John's, sorry, take two. You think Jesus' um, thoughts towards John changed because he had doubt? Then why do you? because you have a transactional relationship with God. Because in your mind, the gospel that you've been led to believe, and I would say lied to believe that somehow, if you do well, God has favor on you. And when you do poorly, God somehow pulls his favor away from you. And I don't think many of us are wrong to see that, particularly when we read the Old Testament scriptures. The blessings of God would oftentimes come to them when they were obedient to him. And the curses and the plagues would come when they were disobedient to him. So it's easy to make that connection in the old covenant. But in the new covenant of which G, um, Roof, Roach, Roach, sorry, thank Yes, Ryan talked about during, his name is Ryan Cochran. I call him Roach. You can too. It makes his wife really mad, but you can call him Roach if you want. <laughs> That's what he talks about in the new covenant. That's old covenant theology. New covenant theology is Jesus has done it all. But some of us still hold on to a transactional relationship with him. And so when you doubt and when you consider if he's really real or whatever, and, you, and no wonder he feels so far away from you, is what you, th is what you say. He's not left you. He's never left. Is this resonating with anyone? I'm willing to start over if it would, be, if it would help you guys. Should I just swipe, take two, thank you. Swipe, swipe to the top and go. Even in his doubt, Jesus doesn't chastise him. He begins to laud John before all the people to hear. Such a strange thing. Um, Jesus uses that phrase, uh, uh, any, anyone alive who's been born of a woman or something. I thought that was strange. I thought that's how all people were born. And um, giggle, right? But in our culture, we're like, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's a trap. <laughs> it's not a trap. Um, Jesus is making a, a distinction here. He, he's saying anyone born in the natural way, which would be, all of humanity who are still um, in their sinful state. But he continues. He says, but I say, 
Um, but as Jesus continues, he says that those least in the kingdom of God will be greater than him. It's to say this, those of us who becomes, become uh, adopted sons and daughters to, to God through Christ Jesus, right, as our Savior, that, that we will, are, who are the least in the kingdom, we are saved by Jesus, we are greater than anyone, even John because of the work that God has done for us. Is that resonating? I'll move past that. That was a, that was a hard sell, I agree. I wrote it last night after I went to the, after I went to the Devon. And so uh, that's, that was me trying to close things up. But it's to say this, um, that when doubt comes, um, God is not angered by it. I don't think he's frustrated by it. I would encourage us to take our doubt to Jesus and not to your friend who's not a believer anymore and not to the internet, where all things are true. <laughs> In uh, November 2019, CNN.com published the 10 most famous paintings in the world. And I'm like, yeah, that's interesting. Um, what they did is they just looked at all of the Google searches for that previous year um, for, for paintings and just sort of compiled them into the most searched for paintings. And they come up with a list of what were the most famous paintings. So whatever. And we could debate exactly what famous means. I don't know. I really thought dogs playing poker would make the list. It did not. <laughs> like it did, I wanted it to just for, it's amazing, but no, it didn't. Um, it, it just means that the people that were looking to scratch their art itch, they looked online for a famous painting, whatever. So I wanted it to be, uh, to include people like Banksy and other street artists like David Cho, but it didn't. But you know who won the most famous painting of all? You know who this is. It's the smirking smile of who? Mona Lisa. Yeah, Mona Lisa. Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci gave the world its most famous painting, the Mona Lisa, in the early 16th century. And it can be seen in person if you join the throngs of visitors that go to the Louvre Museum in Paris. And once you're there, you can snap a selfie with the painting just over your shoulder and your social media gets instant art cred, just so you know. However, while you were bustling past the crowds to take your spot in front of that infamous smiling woman, you would probably miss another masterpiece by Leonardo that's hanging just to the left of the Mona Lisa. It's another painting by the Renaissance master. In fact, scholars believe it to be the last painting that da Vinci ever painted. And it is a painting of St. John the Baptist. Most people don't even see it because they are so mesmerized by the Mona Lisa. But the painting of John has a fascinating backstory that I close with today. Research researchers have used a monochromatic sodium lighting technique and have discovered that some of the details in the painting were actually added to it sometime later by a different artist, nonetheless. Someone touched up uh, the painting after da Vinci died. It's almost like they wanted to help the master painter get the painting right. Of course, we look at this and say, how ridiculous of an idea this is. No one could add anything to a da Vinci masterpiece, no matter how great of an artist they actually are. And so I find it interesting that we oftentimes do the same thing to John the Baptist's story. We add to it, we say things like this. Well, John wasn't really doubting Jesus. And this is, I read this in a commentary this week, that one commentator was saying that, I don't think John was doubting. I think he had another ulterior motive. And this is what he said. 
Because I don't think he was really doubting Jesus. He was just sending his disciples to to ask Jesus so that they could hear it for themselves whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. John knew he was the Messiah. But a simple reading of the text doesn't allow for such a gymnastics in the hermeneutics there. No, John, I would say, had doubt. And so he took that doubt to Jesus. He didn't go to others asking what they thought. He didn't Google what all the other world's religions said about Jesus. He didn't slink away and hope that one day he would find the truth as if by accident. No, John took his doubt to Jesus. And so Jesus affirmed that doubt and said it wasn't wrong. And he wants to affirm many of you here in this room with the same thing. And I want to encourage you. All of us are going to encounter a season where our faith will wane. I've pastored for 12 years now, full-time at this church, and I did some ministry about a decade or so before I was here doing this. And I I want you to know, everyone is one phone call away from the doctor, and our faith begins to wane. That's all it takes. One pink slip from your employer, one dear John letter from the one you love, and your faith begins to wane. At a time when unbelief and doubt can become roommates in our mind and the light that shone so bright in our lives has grown dim, it is okay to go to Jesus with your doubt. I would say this, doubt is an incredible tool used by God to irritate those whose genuine faith needs strengthened. It's like a kernel of popcorn stuck in your teeth. You know what I'm talking about? You just can't think about anything else and you're having a meeting at work and your tongue's darting over into the tooth trying to get this thing dislodged and your boss is like, is he listening to me? You're like, "Mm mm-hmm, and you're just digging, digging, digging. Doubt can be like that. As you wander through life, it is constantly in front of you, wanting your attention. It's a beautiful thing that God uses to strengthen your faith. Find the truth in Jesus. Go to him and wrestle with said truth. Wonder what it's gonna look like question. Wait till that kernel's been dislodged. Man, God is good. Let's pray together. Thank you guys for sticking around. I really appreciate you. Can we pray? So dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We gather in this moment of some reflection and understanding, grateful for the wisdom that has been shared through the scriptures and the lessons that we have gleaned from the story of John the Baptist. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege to learn from doubts. And we find strength in John's unwavering commitment to seek the truth that he wanted to know. And Lord, make us people that want to know. Lord, we acknowledge that doubt can sometimes creep into our hearts and our minds and shake the foundations of our faith. And so we ask for grace and we ask for your guidance, Lord, during these moments of uncertainty. Help us. Help us like John to bring our doubts to you and seek understanding and reassurance. Thank you, Lord, for being a God who welcomes our questions and our uncertainties. And you are always ready to provide answers and comfort. May we always lean on you in our times of doubt, knowing that your love and your presence in our lives are steadfast, yes, and they are unchanging. You are not a transactional God with us. 
So as we depart from this gathering, Lord, let the lessons we have learned today stay with us. May we continue to grow in our faith, seeking your truth and following the path that you've set before us. God, strengthen our resolve to trust in you, even in the midst of our doubts. If we know that you are the ultimate source, the only source of hope and peace in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to support you and have you be a part of our community. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. There you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, and even contribute to the growth of the church through online giving. Or you can come see us in person on Sunday mornings in downtown Decatur. We can't wait to see you.